Holy Gospel comes to us today from the book of John. Glory to you, O Lord. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? But Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? But Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get into our text this morning, we must rewind a little bit back into the earlier chapters. We're only in chapter 3, but already in the first two chapters, Jesus is already up to something quite monumental. In the very first beginning part of chapter 2, we have this moment in which Jesus sets out into his public ministry. He's already gathered a few of his chief disciples around him, and there they are at this wedding, the wedding in Cana. And it's in that moment, of course, where Mary comes busting through the doors, and she says, Dear son, Jesus, the, uh, we're out of wine, a problem that, uh, that we don't want to have, Amen. And not only that, in our, in our tradition, it's one thing to have a wedding reception and not have full hospitality present. But I've shared before that in a Jewish wedding, a Jewish wedding lasted an entire week. It puts our weddings to shame. But hospitality is the chief witness to being a good family in good standing in the Jewish culture. And so here we are early on in the week, and all of a sudden they're already out of wine. It's not a good thing for this family. It's not a good thing for the community. And, of course, Mary comes to her son, Jesus, and says, I know that you can do something about this. And this is when we have that really interesting exchange where the son looks at the mother and says, Mother, what does this have to do with me? In fact, actually, it says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And that's where we have this moment. It's like, oh, Jesus, I don't know, uh, I don't know if we're responding quite correctly. But actually, he is. 
Because it's not about Mary, it's not about the family name, it's not about the wine. What Jesus is declaring in this moment is that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, is not at that place to make what he does and who he is public. But Mary gets the best of him, and he he has her step aside. He tells the servants to fill those jars filled with water, and of course he does what we all know he does next. Changes it to wine, and there are the servants that are present and his disciples that are present. It is mind-blowing. It is absolutely changing from here on out as to who this Jesus character is. So that is the lay of the land. And in John's Gospel, shortly after that, they're going to go on down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the first time that they're going to be at the Passover in which Jesus' disciples are with him. And it's at that time in which Jesus will go into the temple, he will take out his ropes, he will flog uh, the sheep and the cattle out of the temple, he will look at those that are selling the doves, and he says, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of robbers? In John's Gospel, this has already happened before John chapter 3. So now we enter into the text that many of us are familiar with. We're familiar with that 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think almost every single one of us have heard that verse at some point in our lives. And if it wasn't in the church setting, it was certainly watching NFL games with Tim Tebow literally painting John 3.16 under his eyes before every game. Amen? Amen? But we do not know the context that surrounds one of the most famous verses of our faith. So we get to tonight. We get to the text at hand. We get to this moment in time in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night. Now, Nicodemus is a chief Pharisee. And what that means for us in our context, it means that Nicodemus isn't just a random pastor or a random priest. Nicodemus isn't just a random rabbi in the Jewish faith. Nicodemus is the highest of the high. For Nicodemus, he too would have been elected by the Sanhedrin, which consists of both Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling councils of the Jewish tradition. And there Nicodemus is elevated to the absolute highest of standards. He is the keeper of the law. If you are in the community, if you are in the culture, and you are wondering what God says into your faith, into your livelihood, into your reality... Nicodemus is the one. He is the be-all, end-all in telling you what is true. But that be-all, end-all of all knowledge and all truth is certainly curious on this night in our text. As it says, he comes to Jesus in the night. It's, It's easy to speculate that maybe he comes to Jesus in the night because he isn't sure if he can be, quite frankly, caught affiliating with this guy named Jesus. After all, he has just whipped out all the cattle. He has absolutely flipped the tables on the Roman and Jewish economic system down in the temple on the Passover. He he is now changing water into wine. The miracles and the stories are getting out. In fact, it is Nicodemus himself that says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God We're not with him. Now, whether that is Nicodemus just an attempt at schmoozing him, or whether Nicodemus is actually declaring that clearly you are someone of different stature, 
We do not know. But what we do know is that Nicodemus is coming in the darkness to be hidden in some sorts. In a philosophical, theological level, one could make the argument that Nicodemus comes in the darkness because John, the author of this gospel, is deeply, profoundly passionate with helping us understand the difference of what happens in the darkness of our lives versus what happens in standing in the light of Christ. And why do I say that? Because the Greek word of light, photos, in John's Gospel, the word light is used more in John's Gospel than the entire rest of the Bible combined. For John, this understanding of light versus darkness is profoundly important. And we're not done with that light versus darkness yet. But John comes in the darkness. He knocks on that door. Jesus invites him in. And then the theological diatribe comes to fruition. Jesus replies to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That one sentence should be enough to absolutely stop Nicodemus dead in his tracks. Amen? The reason being is this. For this man, Jesus, this fellow rabbi of sorts, he is to say, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Who has the audacity, who has the authority to say who can see the kingdom of God and who can't? If you're looking at these two men, by cultural standards, by Jewish law standards, Nicodemus clearly is the one that's going to take the cake on this, on this debate. Nicodemus is clearly the one that has authority to declare who maybe will be getting in and who might not. But Jesus clearly says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now that born again language is something that really confuses us in our American ways. In the American evangelical system of things, being born again uh, takes us down that slippery slope of, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you come up forward to the altar call lately? Have you made Jesus a choice in your life, in your faith? Have you heard this? I think we've all heard this connotation in one way, shape, or form. However, that too is missing the point. Being born again, I love it, Nicodemus, again, Nicodemus being the keeper of the law, the keep of, keeper of all things logical, Nicodemus' response is not American evangelicalism. Why do we say that? Because Nicodemus' response to that statement is, how can one be born again? He cannot climb into his mother's womb again a second time, to which every mother in the sanctuary says amen. My wife would never want to encounter such a thing ever in her life, I can only imagine. And I don't think this is Nicodemus just being facetious or being snarky back. This is Nicodemus literally stuck tunnel vision in the law and the ways that the world works. He says, how is this even possible? And Jesus gives this beautiful response. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Another Greek translation is not born again, but born from above. And that born from above hits it right on the head. 
Because in the next statement, we hear these words that Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying is that this new birth, this necessary birth in our Christian faith, does not come from birth of the flesh. It comes from birth from above. It comes from the Spirit, and that Spirit that blows into our lives, blows into our hearts and into our minds. This Spirit is exactly the same Spirit that Jesus and John the Baptist encounter earlier on in his, uh, right before his public ministry becomes public, in which those waters of baptism. It's in those baptism waters that we hear the promise of the Spirit given to us. And I love how Jesus compares the spirit to the wind. Because all the way back in the Genesis, in the creation story, in which God takes that that dust, creates the mud, molds it and shapes it into that figure that we're going to call Adam in that soon moment of this creation. And then God breathes the ruach, which is Hebrew for spirit, which is also the same Hebrew word for wind. He blows, he literally breathes the spirit into Adam and gives Adam life. Jesus is saying the same thing to Nicodemus, except he adds the caveat, the twist. He reminds Nicodemus that you have no ability to judge, weigh, or forecast this wind of the Spirit. He reminds him that the wind comes. It will go as it pleases. You have no control of it. You do not know where it comes from. You cannot say where it's going. And so is those who are born with the Spirit. What Jesus is declaring to Nicodemus is that this is now outside of your job description, Nicodemus. The Spirit, its job is to come. And you have no part in that through your understanding of the law. This is the stumbling block for Nicodemus. It's a stumbling block because Nicodemus has to be able to tell you the answers to everything. But the Spirit will not allow you to do that. The Spirit's job is to come. It is not our job to control it. And then, of course, Nicodemus asks, how can any of this be? And Jesus simply replies, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I'm going to say this. Jesus, in this moment, gives Nicodemus a bone. He gives him a chance at this moment. In fact, he gives him the words, he gives him the language to finally connect some dots. Jesus goes on further. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now this is where Nicodemus can have an aha moment. For a glimpse, he might have a clue what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is taking Nicodemus back into those Old Testament laws. Now Nicodemus would have been a master of every word in the Old Testament. For Nicodemus to be the chief Pharisee, he would have been able to quote every single word in the Old Testament, every single verse, every single chapter. And Jesus throws him back into Numbers chapter 21, in which we have this moment where the Israelites, 
The Israelites who have been brought out of Egypt, that Exodus story, they're now wandering for 40 years. And what do the Israelites do? They do what we human beings do best. They start to complain. Amen? They complain. And they whine. And they complain some more. And they already start building their golden calf, worshiping their false gods. And as things are not, uh, not playing out the way that they think they should, they even go to Moses and Aaron and they start begging and pleading that they can go back to Egypt because that makes a whole lot of sense. They want to go back to Egypt. They are disgracing their belief in God, this God who's literally with them day and night, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. He is with them, he has not abandoned them, and in the midst of his presence, they still complain and whine. And so what does God do? He does something that we human beings absolutely cringe about. He brings his wrath in the form of venomous snakes. And those venomous snakes are now in the camp, and everyone that whines and complains gets bit. And when they get bit, shortly thereafter, they will die. We don't like that God, do we? Amen? But guess what? It's still the way God functions. God is going to get their attention. And in the midst of this death, in the midst of this depravity, what does God do? He has this conversation with Moses, and he says, Moses, I'm also going to give you the way out. Fashion yourself a serpent made out of bronze, put that serpent on a pole, and set it up in the middle of the camp, and everyone who fixes their gaze on that bronze serpent will be healed and saved from the venomous snakes. Any of you that work in the medical industry, you've seen this exact image every single day. The bronze snake around the cross is exactly this image out of Numbers 21. So for Nicodemus... He hears these words of Jesus, and for a glimpse, he's like, aha, again, if we get back to the law, if we stick to Scripture, if we stick to knowing exactly what God expects of us, then by golly, we have that glimpse of salvation. And it's in this moment in which Jesus, I imagine, gently puts up his hand and says, stop, Nicodemus, I just gave you the rest of the story. Just as that serpent was lifted up on that pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Where do we have that eternal life? by the Son of Man lifted up on a pole himself. What Jesus is saying very early on in John is the foreshadowing of what is to come. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For, the God, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Verse 19, which is not included in a reading this morning. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not, or will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Jesus gives Nicodemus a sermon. He came to him in the darkness. 
And what God says, what Jesus, God in the flesh, says to Nicodemus is you must step out of that darkness and stand in the light of God. We, too, come to God in the darkness. It's a safe bet to say that the culture and the world we live in today loves staying in the darkness. And the reason I can say that is because every single time we give a connotation of naming something a sin or naming something a brokenness in the law or the brokenness in the creation that we live in, what do we do? We all hunker and coil back into the darkness rather than standing in the light of God. We'd rather slunk ourselves back into the darkness where we can hide all of our struggles, all of our shame, all of our personal guilt, all of our deeds, so that maybe, just maybe, as long as I stay in the shadows, that I will never be exposed. But Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, you must step out into the light, you must fix your gaze on something else, and that gaze is no longer fixated on a bronze serpent that is all within the structures of the law. You are now going to fix your gaze on the Son of Man, who is lifted up for all to see. We must step into the light and fix our gaze on the light of God, the light of the world. And all throughout Scripture, we hear that that light of the world is Christ himself. There is hope in the story. If you were to read 16 chapters later, We finally get to that point in John's Gospel where the Son of Man is indeed lifted up on a pole for all to see. As Jesus is on that cross, as Jesus takes his last breath, as the earthquake transpires and darkness surrounds Jerusalem and the temple curtain is torn in half inside the temple on top of the Temple Mount, it's in this moment that Jesus takes his last breath and it's in that moment in which true judgment comes to fruition. There's two men that go to Pontius Pilate asking permission to take Jesus' body off the cross. One of them is Joseph of Arimathea, who had a clear allegiance to that Sanhedrin, but at the same time had this profound amount of wealth and care for this man who just died on the cross. And his friend, his colleague, is Nicodemus. At the very end of the story, there is Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body off the cross. And Nicodemus comes with literally a hundred pounds of anointing spices and anointing oils to anoint the Son of Man who was lifted up. Now we don't know, and theologians have speculated over all the centuries, but I think it's in this moment where the man who harnesses the law realizes that the law is not going to solve his problems. Realizes that all of the convictions that we as human beings have for what is right and what is wrong is not going to ultimately solve the problems. Instead, Nicodemus steps out of the darkness and he stands at the foot of the cross in the light of the world. He stands there right in this pivotal moment where he stands facing the light of God as the shadow of the cross overshadows him in that moment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is not going to allow death to rule in our lives. God is not going to allow the poisonous snakes to have the final say. 
God is not going to allow our complaints and our practice of disbelief to win the day. In fact, God puts to death, death itself. And for this we are glad. For this we find on the cross. For this is where we fix our gaze. Thanks be to God. Amen.